namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami so today the noble eightfold path crew have come from Ottawa and other friends from far near and the Hua asked me to speak today on the word Vedana and Vedana is the second foundation of mindfulness. Any narrow uh, topic that you pick from Buddhism you always have to remember it's in a wider context and sometimes if you just if you just don't see if you don't see that then then Buddhism can just sound like uh, a moral philosophy or psychotherapy or you know whatever aspect you take so it's a it's a very broad teaching and it includes many many elements and the assumption is that one is like if we if we speak about mindfulness now the assumption is that one is living a moral life and is practicing compassion and generosity that's a given right so i assume we're all like that uh, and that's what I find. People who come here aren't into, uh, they're not warriors. You know, they're, they're usually very compassionate, loving beings. So, but that's important to remember that, that mindfulness without morality is, is ridiculous. And a heart which is just into controlling and doesn't have expressive, generous, compassionate qualities is, is going to find mindfulness very difficult because it'll probably just be some kind of control mechanism. The right mindfulness uh, is a part of the Noble Eightfold Path, and the Noble Eightfold Path is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, which is what we refer to as the first teaching of the Buddha, and also we sometimes call it the the teaching within which all other teachings of the Buddha fall. So if you study that and you have get a sense of it, then that really helps you, gives you a, a really good framework within which you can consider all of the Buddhist teachings, but also other teachings, right view, uh, right understanding. You can like you can read Rumi or Christian mysticism or Advaita Vedanta or whatever school of philosophy or religious endeavor you want. You can you can look at it and say, well, how does that fit in with right understanding? I, I found that very helpful because I like to read outside of Theravada Buddhism, and then when I come across something which isn't just sort of some kind of fundamental belief, right? It's something I feel that the authors or speakers has some profound insight, but it's speaking from a whole different model or a system of, of language. And, and, I, and I go back to my own understanding and my own sense of what is right understanding. And then I say, well, where are they coming from? And it gives me a way of in, uh, reading, reading other, other traditions. So right understanding, we approach it in, in many ways, but one of the things that we consider in Buddhism, that the, the, the reason human beings suffer, the reason we don't realize our, our full spiritual potential, say, is because of ignorance. And, and ignorance is quite, quite important to understand. That ignorance isn't like IQ or dexterity in uh, athletics or being able to be a computer programmer or all those different worldly skills we have. It's not, it's not about that. Ignorance is about seeing things wrongly, interpreting things wrongly from 
uh, a misunderstanding. And one of the ways that that is uh, spoken about is that when we see, when we perceive in that which is changing permanence, that's ignorance. When we perceive in that which is not really personal, that I don't really own it, when we when we perceive it that I own it, that that's ignorance. And when we perceive in that which is really unfulfilling, we look for fulfillment, and that's ignorance. So when in the in the changing I see permanence, that's ignorance. So that on a superficial level, you, you look around, yeah, things are changing, it's nice and cool now. Uh, it was hot yesterday, the day before, whenever it was hot, it was hot, it was hot, very hot. I couldn't sit in here. So yeah, okay, it's changing. But that's, of course, easy. But when you feel self-doubt, or when you feel confident, inspired, say, right? That can seem like very solid and very permanent. Moods are like that, aren't they? Moods have this sort of color, color, tone, a feeling about them that, that seems very, very solid. Very, very, they, no matter how many times you might notice self-doubt come and go, when it comes up, it seems very me. It seems very me, very solid, very permanent. That's ignorance. It's not... I mean, we all know things change, but that kind of core belief when a mood comes into the mind that this is, this is a reality, this is who I am, we don't necessarily say it out loud like that, but we have a, we have a sense, yeah, this is, this is who I really am. Like if I, if I feel, I was saying yesterday, talking to my, our Sri Lankan friends who came, like if you're, if you're in a really judgmental mood or you're feeling quite, just got a lot of negativity coming up, you know, and you look around, that person's not, they're no good, they're not good enough, da, 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 da. it seems very real. It seems that your interpretation is reality. That's ignorance. That's not seeing things clearly. And what is seeing things clearly is that a perception is just a... It's a condition that comes according to causes and effects and so on. So you're in a good mood, and all of a sudden you notice the person you're really critical of actually has the flu. And also you feel compassion. Yesterday you thought they were a real deadbeat, and now you're feeling compassion. You have different information or whatever. And then you think, well, that's, yeah, that's just true. Yeah, the person's really a lovely person. Then the next day, creep. So we see, we see this movement of mood and, and, and bodily feeling and so on. They're natural phenomena. You know, moods are natural phenomena. Bodily things are natural phenomena. But we very often don't see them as natural phenomena, which arise and cease according to causes and conditions. We see them as, as some kind of core realities that we really are. And we suffer. We suffer. So when we see in that which is changing permanence, that's ignorance. When that which is really not me or mine, we see a person. So my mood, like I was contemplating this week a lot, how curious it is being a human being. I experience all manner of personality traits, but I can never find a person. You know, I can be the kind of jovial, charming kind of monk. Or I can be the reclusive kind of leave me alone, I'm in the workshop right now kind of monk. Or I can be, you know, really determined, or I can be lazy, and all kinds of different personality characteristics come up, but I can never find a person. I can't find an essential Viradhammo. Have you have you found an essential whoever? Isn't it true that the the kind of sense of a person is something that actually comes and goes with causes and conditions. So you, 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 you do something 
successfully and you feel on top of your game. It's Olympics now, I guess that's the way we talk, and you pump your fist or whatever. Uh, or, or you, you know, it, it all fails, it all falls apart, and they go, oh, I'm just hopeless. And So that's like a personality characteristic or a mood or interpretation. But when you look at it, it just comes and goes, comes and goes. And, and so this sort of sense of an essential core person, we would say in Buddhism, is an assumption which you need to look at, because it's not true. What is true is there's awareness, there is consciousness, and consciousness is the experience of life through the sense, through the sense doors that we receive life. But consciousness itself, or, or awareness itself, has no core personhood in it, it just is. So if I ask you to feel the wind on your bare shoulder, <laughs> or on your head, or you, if I ask you just to listen to the finch, or whatever it is, and you listen, is there a person that, there is awareness, yeah? But is there a person like a me? Well, well, certainly there's a sense of presence. But when I look for a sense of a me, my mind goes silent. And that, that seems to be the limit of our capacity to go anywhere else. You can't get behind awareness. You can only be aware. So in terms of right understanding, then, I will get to Vedana, I promise. In terms of, of right understanding... Buddhism is always based upon doing things from right understanding. Because if I'm functioning from wrong understanding, then already I'm, I'm like going down the wrong trail. I've taken the long, wrong road. So right understanding, again, is that that which has a nature to arise has a nature to cease. That that which is, has a nature to arise has a nature to cease is causally conditioned. It's dependently originated. My moods and emotions in this body are dependently originated. They're not really things that I own. I, I certainly experience them different than you do, so there's individuality. But in that individuality, that's also natural. So the moods I have and, and the bodily feelings I experience are because of my age, my cultural conditioning, my monastic conditioning, and, and so many other things. So it's not really something that I own, and yet I have to be responsible, I have to be aware. And then if I seek fulfillment in that which changes, I, I only get a kind of temporary hit, if that. Quote, I can get a lot of disappointment. Now the Buddhist teaching is saying, well, there is something which is very fulfilling, but it's not an experience in the normal sense of things. It's something which lies behind experience, or within experience, or around experience. And it's the doorway to that realization is awareness or mindfulness. And the reason we emphasize these, the, this right understanding is because wrong understanding is, first of all, you're looking, we're looking for fulfillment in the wrong place, and then we'll be disappointed. So, if I have a spiritual sense of life, not just a hedonistic sense of life. So hedonism is fine. We had a nice meal and like just feeling the, the temperature now is hedonistic, isn't it? To some extent. Like it's just pleasure for me. And someone has a blanket on for them it's cold or whatever, but that's that's sense sense pleasure, right? But imagine trying to find spiritual 
peace in sense pleasure. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet that we have that, and I certainly enjoy the pleasant. I like color, and I'm addicted to coffee, I think. Things like that. But it's obviously not a spiritual thing. It's just, so if I don't get it, is that really a problem? And my moods, my moods. Like, to think that that which is essentially spiritual or transcendent or liberating or Nibbana or whatever is a mood, well, then I'm in trouble too because moods are always dependent on causes and conditions. So it's not a psychological state. It's not a physical state. It's not a psychological state. It's not a social relationship. It's not a thing, a car or a new desk for the library. It's none of that. Or a new chisel or something like that. So it's not an object, this, this realization that the Buddha is pointing to. It's not an object. It's accessed through awareness. All right? So that's one riff around right understanding. Right understanding is very, very important. So getting to, to mindfulness, so what, what mindfulness is trying to do, mindfulness practice, is, is ground us in the present moment. Because it's only in the present moment that we can realize the unconditioned or the, the spiritual possibility of our lives, the deep peace and the deep love that is possible in human experience. Because any, any projection into the future is always like a sense of becoming. And any dwelling in the past into the future, this kind of going back and forth, you miss the moment. And the moment is where it's at. So it's essential, essential to stay present to the way things are. And we're always emphasizing that. Why is that? Well, if you just like philosophically think about it, if something is unconditioned, unconditional fulfillment, it's not dependent on causes and conditions, it can't be tomorrow. Because if it's tomorrow, then it's dependent on me doing something to get somewhere. So it always has to be here and now. The only thing that makes sense to me has to be here and now. So there's something I'm missing about the here and now. Something that's eluding me. Why does it elude me? Well, because I'm preoccupied with Vedana. There we go. We got the word in. Vedana is the feeling of... It's, it's the kind of polarity of our sense experience. The polarity of being attracted or being repelled. And it's a biological necessity. Vedana is the feeling of pleasure or pain. And pleasure and pain are a spectrum. They're not absolutes. So you get the extremely pleasurable, the extremely displeasurable, and a, and a neutrality in the middle. So it's a spectrum. And that moves. It moves all the time according to causes and conditions. So I'm sure if I sat with my shoulder bare up tonight, all night, then I'd, I'd want a blanket. I'd get cold. Right now, it's very nice. Pleasure, pain. So there's this movement. And in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, Rupa, Vedana, Jitta, and Dhamma, we, well, the way I look at it is that the Buddhist says, well, there is, there's like the life of forms, like the sound of the blue jay, and the vision of the deer, and the color of the grass. These are all the forms that we experience in life, right? Beautiful bird, but terrible call, isn't it? <laughs> That's my perception. Terrible call? Blue Jay doesn't think that. The mother of the Blue Jay doesn't think that. Probably thinks, oh, sweet voice. My girl. 
So that's perception. So not only do I experience forms, I experience mental things too. I interpret life. How could I? I couldn't survive without it. And both mental forms and and uh, the sensations that I, physical things and sound, sights and sounds and so on, inherent in them in the way I as a human being interpret them is Vedana. So Vedana is a necessary part of of the human experience. It is just a part of it. And it's it's nothing right or wrong about it. And it's what biologically makes me eat food when I'm hungry, have a rest when I'm tired, put on a coat if it's snowing. It's biologically necessary. And we all like pleasure. We dis- dislike this pleasure, right? If we didn't have that, we'd be dead. We'd be dead. I remember way, way back there was a Life magazine. Remember Life magazine? I don't think they have it anymore. They used to have these big format pictures. and They had an article on a kid who didn't feel any pain. And the mother had to check its body all the time to make sure it hadn't broken a leg or, or had a deep cut. And you think, well, if I didn't have any pain, oh, that'd be neat. Not so. Right? Anyway, we have it. We have pleasure and we have pain. And getting back to right understanding... Now, if my if I, I I'm on a spiritual search, if I'm like really sincerely interested in something more profound than hedonism and fun and excitement and so on, if I think there is a there is a dimension, say, of peace, which maybe I've touched, you know, maybe there's been an epiphany in my life, maybe I've touched people who emulate that, whatever, then the problem I'm gonna have is the problem of pleasure and pain. Because pleasure pulls me towards itself, but pleasure is a sense experience and it's impermanent. It's dependently originated. The same with pain. Pain pushes me away from itself towards pleasure. Pain is also impermanent. And if if that's the only thing I do, I'm always in a kind of reactive mode, pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain, then what, what happens is I'm preoccupied. I'm preoccupied with sense experience, because I'm preoccupied with sense experience, I cannot realize that which is beyond sense experience. Not that sense experience is wrong, it's just that I don't have enough space in my conscious experience to let anything new come up, anything marvelous or wonderful or, or uh, transcendent to, to be known, to be known, I would say. So it's this preoccupation with emotions and thoughts and memories and and projects and relationships and all that. It's the preoccupation with it to a degree where there is no silence, where there's no stillness, where there's no openness, where there's no freshness, where there's no originality. That's the problem. And so what we're trying to do in meditation is come to that sort of originality or freshness or innocence, I suppose. Innocence in a sense, not not in an in a, in emotional or childlike, but innocence in a sense of... I, I don't know anything. This is the way it is now. No definition, no structure, just this kind of open attention to the way things are. That's what we have to do, I think. We have to come to this kind of open attention when we're no longer judging and adjudicating and and fixing and trying to get and trying to get rid of because we're no longer believing that the transcendent experience is in any kind of experience. The transcendence itself is something which is inherent in awareness. Now that's difficult to do because if you're if you meditate say you meditate like 
say, um, I was meditating with you and um, kept thinking, the clock's broken. This is one of my afflictions that I get because when I have more people in a shrine room, I think, oh, and then people start to shift a bit, you know, and I start to kind of feel responsible while I'm torturing them. <laughs> this is not compassionate. And then I can just feel it, this, this sense of, what time is it? The clock's broken. And I watch that. I just watch this kind of restlessness. Viradamo, it hasn't been broken for three years. It's okay, you know. And I just watch. What am I watching? I'm not just watching this, like the sense of the future. Huh? And that's nothing much. It's nothing much. But actually, each time I do that kind of observation, like this bit of anticipation, just that, each time I do that, I reference awareness as my home ground, and I see anticipation as an object. And that's wisdom. When I take anticipation as my home ground, I become the anticipator. I become, like if it was really bad, anxious or whatever. I am reborn, or my sense of consciousness or a, a self is reborn into that. And I think, what's going to happen and what's going to go on? And that's okay, but... That thinking preoccupation precludes the possibility of realizing the unconditioned. Why? Because I'm caught in thought, I'm caught in conditions, I'm caught in the future, blah, 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 blah. So what we're trying to do in, in Buddhist life is practice mindfulness and begin to be okay with the unpleasant and the pleasant in a way where we don't hurt ourselves. So I don't, I don't suggest you do a 40-day fast to look at the unpleasant, right? I suggest you eat normally. Um, <laughs> very healthy thing to do, I've heard. But to find a mind that can be okay with the unpleasant and with the pleasant and not have to move on them. Begin to find this, this, this consciousness which isn't moved by life but can remain still in the center, stillness of being. We do that in meditation a lot, you know, as a kind of exercise in, in non-movement. So you, you're, you're sitting and you have some uh, resentment come up or some fantastic plan of what you're going to do, that's an object rather than become the subject of that. Hard to do, isn't it? It's, you got some idea you're going to go maybe go to Thailand for Christmas or something like that and and it's a pleasant idea, right? Well, I'm going to go to Thailand, see my mom, see my friends, eat cow pot, <laughs> right? Now that is a pleasant experience. That's Vedana. You're, you're sitting in meditation, and your meditation is basically boring. The breath is not, you know, unless you have really good concentration, the breath is neutral. And we don't like neutral. We like pleasant. So Vedana, Vedana moves from pleasant to neutral to unpleasant, right? So when it's neutral, we usually get bored, and something else pops up. Thailand. I'll go to Thailand. Now that is a pleasant experience because it's a thought of something nice that you're going to do. And so what happens? You get reborn in Bangkok. And you start thinking about friends and family. It'll be so nice. And then the bell rings. That's attachment. And that's a Vedana. That, that arising of a pleasant mindset is a Vedana. Now, if, I, if my mindfulness is strong and clear, I can see, oh, that's pleasant. It's just a thought. I think I'll stay with the breath. Or I'll stay here now. 
just for that because I've been I've been to Bangkok four times in the last ten minutes so I think I think I'll do something else and 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 you begin to see oh that's that that pleasant experience just an object but it is pleasant and it draws you the other resentment you were betrayed by someone someone insulted you at work or you betrayed someone else in remorse regret that comes up into the mind and that is unpleasant you don't like that so you want to get rid of it worry so you know you, you have this thought yeah Bangkok I don't know yeah I heard there was bombing in the south of Thailand <laughs> right so now your scenario becomes negative maybe I shouldn't go and you start to worry yeah, but I'm, I got to my ticket already but what am I going to do maybe I should change my ticket and I'm reborn again why because I don't like the unpleasant and I'm trying to figure out how to get out, out, rid of the unpleasant and I think or repress and so basically our attention is kidnapped constantly preoccupied constantly mostly it's trivial isn't it you know it's like that game trivial pursuit <laughs> if you if you look at where your attention goes it's embarrassing isn't it <laughs> it's, oh my god I gotta go there and so to you know, to stay in the present is actually quite quite a challenge quite a challenge but you don't do it with force you do it with wisdom you do it with awakening so that's why the way I like to teach is like feel the wind and be and be be present to the really normal really simple stuff right and then watch watch you know just observe when things become like when you, when you get a like pleasantness and you want to go towards it don't go there and when something's unpleasant don't reject it so what happens is mindfulness becomes this sense of deep presence and deep acceptance. It accepts everything. And you can see that's the, the only way you could realize transcendence if you, were, if you just refused to react to any sense experience. You'd still have your responsibilities, right? And you still feed the body and all that. But your home ground, you'd see, has to be awareness. It has to be awareness of change. Now, when I look at the changing nature of Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, when I can be aware of the changing nature of that, all of a sudden I have this stillness because I'm not just getting pulled by the pleasant or unpleasant. I'm not getting pulled around by it. Probably the most difficult thing in right understanding is the whole idea of taking things personally, like moods. Yeah, moods just seem so real, don't they? You, know, you can just like feel like You'll never be unhappy again. You know, everything is, yeah, it's great, it's good, it's going well. And you really think it's going to last. <laughs> or the other. You know, you're kind of really fed up with life and you just uh, don't want anymore. You're ready to flush yourself down the toilet, right? And, and it just seems so real. And yet it's not. It's not real. It is and it isn't. It's real in the sense you experience it, but it's ephemeral. And one of the things I like to do with moods is, it, it's a hard one to explain. I've been trying to explain it the last few of these guys have heard it many times. But just like, like if, if I have a strong mood, right? Now, a mood is, is a type of jitta. And so that's the, the third foundation of mindfulness, like a mindset, say, or a mood or whatever. whatever. You, and let's say it's like self-doubt comes up. No, I... You know, am I doing this right? And am I, you know, am I a good abbot or whatever comes up like that? That self-doubt uh, has a kind of color 
And like if it's a very powerful, very negative or, or, or whatever, it really can oppress the mind. It can seem so permanent and so all-enveloping, like, like fog. And yet, I can be aware that it is a mood. So that's the first step, that this is a mood. Now, my thinking mind will be conditioned by the mood, won't it? And it will push the thoughts and push the narratives and push the self-thinking. So if, like in this case, if it's self-doubt, you know, am I doing this right? And maybe not, maybe I should someone else. That's thinking, right? And that thinking is attachment, attachment to a sense of self. Now, if I can just label that mood, if I can just say, this is self-doubt, that's a huge step. Because, you know, I now see it at least objectively. Now, my thinking mind will still be conditioned by the mood, but now I put in a different kind of a thought, and the thought is, this is a mood, rather than, I'm hopeless. So that's the first step. Once you get there, then you have much more fun. Because now you can do something. If you just believe in the mood, then you can't do anything because you're, you're just in the swamp. But if you can say, this is a mood of anxiety, or this is a mood of confidence, what happens is that then all of a sudden your thinking stops. And then it starts up again. Because the moods are powerful. They come and go. But at least you're getting a, like a gap around the mood. You see, well, this is an object. Do that. Learn how to do that, just as you learn how to feel the wind in your hair. <laughs> or taste the sweetness of a cake or something. Just, like, really taste it. Really feel the wind. And, oh, this is a mood. What's the mood of self-doubt? What is it really like before I think about it? That's the second step. And that's so helpful to actually, like, pick up a mood and say, all right, this is a mood. What's it, what's it really like to feel crappy or to feel self-doubt? What's it really, really like? And then let go of the thinking and really be with this mood now. And that takes you to awareness. And then if you want, third step, I would say, is, well, what's not crappy? What's not the mood? And that's awareness. And that's unconditioned. That's, that's the goal. So you, you kind of get lost in a mood, and all of a sudden you notice it. You walk into a tree or something. And then, oh, this is the mood of anxiety. You're awake. You're not, you're not saying that you shouldn't be anxious, or there's no judgment about it. It's just, this, this is what it's like. There's an assessment, you know. And then, I say, well, what's it really like? And then you stop, but you really listen. You make conscious this mood. And then... As you make it conscious, say, well, what's not the mood? And what's not the mood is awareness. And you're home. That's it. You just have to do it a lot. <laughs> Very simple. Now, why, you know, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. But it is difficult because we believe in our moods. They're so seductive, so seemingly real, so, so kind of, inculcated into us from childhood or, you know, whatever conditioning we have. So we need tremendous patience, but I think also you need tremendous faith and awareness. A lot of trust and awareness. Not a belief. You have to trust. And logically, what else could the transcendent be? It can't be an emotion. It can't be the body. It can't be... Well, what else could it be but awareness? It only makes sense. So why do we trust in reacting to things? Because it's a habit. That's all. It's not that we're wrong. Like, 
if I tend to get angry a lot, it's not my fault so much as my habit. That's something I have to work on, and that's something I have to awaken to. But I can awaken to anger. Say, wow, this is really anger. But what's it really like to feel anger? And then I'm in it. I'm awake to it. And I say, yeah, but what's not anger? And that's the knowing. That's the awareness. So you keep, you keep returning to your real home. You keep returning to your real home. And then the power of the delusions, the wrong seeing, the wrong understanding, fades away. Then you can be with Vedana. Then you can understand. Pleasure has its function. Displeasure has its function. If I step on a, on a nail in the workshop and it goes through my sandals, that, that lack of pleasure is very good for me because I get the nail out of my foot. So there's nothing wrong with that. But seeing, okay... That you know, awareness is not pleasure or displeasure, is it? It knows pleasure and displeasure. It has no color. It has no gender. It has no, no form, no structure. But it is, right? We're all aware. We're all conscious. It's not cultural, or it's not sixty-nine years old, or it's always just here and now. So the hook, the hook of delusion is Vedana. Vedana is very important to understand. And then the freedom from Vedana is just knowing pleasure and pain. And then using it appropriately when you have to. All right. I'll leave that for your reflection. Sadhu, <laughs> sadhu,